I'm not sure where to start with this one. <sighs> Do you know this film was actually in development for almost eight years? Off and on, of course. Switched studios once, producers a couple of times, directors twice, writers twice. <laughs> it's actually funny to me. Because, let me just go ahead and give my opinion here, and I know you're all going to hate me for this. <sighs> I really liked this film. Like, a lot. The base premise has some issues, and honestly, the plot isn't the most engaging thing in the world. But it manages on the strength of two things. First, it is a unique confluence of other concepts or types of films. And second of all, it's really well, really well presented. I actually admit that that's pretty much one of the things I always love about most Nolan films in, in general, is the fact that most Nolan films tend to be very well presented. The man certainly has a strong uh, credit, I suppose, for lack of a better way to put it, for polish. And that is something he's very good at. Even in films that are otherwise somewhat unremarkable, he still manages to make them very well presented. Hence, like this one. But there's two other things I want to talk about before I start talking about the film itself. I guess three, looking at my notes. My notes are all over the place, uh, appropriately non-linear. Haha. Oh, by the way, it's basically impossible to talk about this film without spoiling everything. So keep that in mind, okay? So... I want to talk to you about what I like to call domino filmmaking. Now, no, uh, Mr. Nolan himself is good at this, but he's not the only one. In fact, uh, his brother, who ended up writing this, probably has a... Well, I shouldn't say probably. Definitely has a panache for that as well. Uh, and I know that several other people involved in working this also have an idea for this. But let me explain what domino filmmaking is. Domino filmmaking is when you go out of your way to have a very long sequence of setup. In other words, imagine if you set up all the dominoes in the pattern. And good domino filmmaking does three things with its, with its approach. First, it takes its time establishing each domino piece. So we understand, care, and empathize about either the characters, the settings, the, the, the circumstances, the plot, or whatever, that's actually eventually going to be knocked over, right? We have to care about those pieces in order for us to really feel the impact when they're knocked over. Make sense? So this is basically establishment. In fact, it's, what, it's one of the things I bang on about so often about continuity. Is that One of the great advantages of continuity is that it helps to build up establishment. It helps to um, make a reason for caring. So they do a lot of that throughout this film. The first, God, hour and a half, at least, of this film is all set up. Then, <laughs> following that, we have... Um, the next aspect of domino filmmaking is that you have to make a pattern with the dominoes themselves. You can't just, you know, set up a bunch of dominoes in a line. Now, that, that can work, and that will work, and plenty of films do exactly that. Set up, set up, set up, set up, set up, set up, pay off. But a truly good domino film will set up in a specific pattern so that as they are establishing the dominoes, and I know I'm getting a little metaphorical here, but I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. As they establish the dominoes, you see that each domino effectively is just a part of the pattern. We care about that piece, right? We care about Cooper, but we see how Cooper fits into the pattern that they are weaving here. Make sense? The third and, of course, most obvious thing about domino filmmaking, which any domino film does, whether it's you know good or bad, is 
knocking the pieces over and making sure they all fall over at the right time. This film does a lot of that with what is basically like a 30-minute extended conclusion sequence of Doom, which somehow manages to maintain its own, like, bubble of pacing while everything else is collapsing around it with uh, the reveal about what's going on with man. Hugh, man, I mean, really? The reveal of what's going on with man, uh, the acknowledgement of what's going on back home, the brother situation, the burning of the field, the the salvation of Dr. Brand, and all that fun stuff, all of that manages to maintain its own tempo and pace because it's not all just da-da-da-da-da-da-da. In fact, I have to point out the wonderful brilliance of the fact that the big action sequence as the two, as the star and the closest thing to a villain, at least an individual villain, that this uh, film has, has have a fight and it's it's in relative silence. It's not like Instead, it's all just this quiet little beat in the background and the camera's zoomed out and... It's one shot rather than edited to hell and back. I do love the editing work on these, this film, by the way, and in most of his films in general, but especially this one. Anyways. But then they have, so then they have beats in between that, and then there's a moment of excitement as he, you know, calls in and then they go and then they have to get the thing, and then man dies in total silence, by the way. I love that. You get my point, until finally the real climax of the film comes, because the villain was never man, not. Really, but I, I want to talk more about that later. I don't want to get completely off topic. It's so hard to talk about this film in a linear fashion. So that's Domino Filmmaking. Next thing I want to talk about is that this is a horror film. No, not like that. I don't mean... I, I guess that is actually a misnomer. That's a little clickbaity. I apologize. I didn't mean it like that. See, Half-Life, it's a video game, if you've never heard of it, is a horrifying game. But it is not a horror game. A horror game, a horror book... A horror show, a horror film, goes out of its way to try and accomplish a very specific goal when it comes to how it's presented. It tends to lean heavily on gore, tends to lean heavily on shock, and tends to lean heavily on scream factor. But none of those things are really dread, despair, you know, um, that kind of yawning abyss of, oh God, what's going to happen? And of course, most importantly of all, horror. But a horrifying film, well... (sighs) And what I love most about this is because, as I wrote in my notes here, I I put this down as a science horror, but then I realized it's actually more of a realistic horror. Oh, there's science fiction elements. The robots are the most obvious things. But everything is being done at every step to make this seem as believable, grounded, and realistic as possible. I'm not even talking about the extensive amount of work that went, years, literally years, of research that went into the design of the physics behind the film to make it as accurate to what we knew at the time as physics as possible. And I only say new because I don't actually know if we've disproven anything of this film by this point in history. But, you know, all this effort and time and work being done to make this as scientifically realistic as possible. But what I mean by it is it is is extremely grounded. At all points in time, we are following the perspective of individuals way down at ground level, even though we are talking about macroscopic macroscopic proportions. (laughs) We are dealing with literal survival of species and extra-dimensional... I guess the way I want to call this is contiguous existence. And yet it's all told from the perspective of a guy and his daughter. As an aside, I think it was a brilliant move. And in fact, I was honestly going to be more inclined to dislike this film until they did their first cutaway back to Earth with the the daughter who was there. And from that point onwards, they do regular cuts back and forth between the mission and back on Earth, showing the two stories kind of moving along side by side. 
which obviously makes sense for the connections and intangible point, which I'll get to in a minute, but also, again, helps elevate the story. As I've said many times, you don't need to have your camera follow a single perspective throughout an entire film, and I feel like a lot of people kind of miss that, especially when it comes to science fiction. Third thing I want to talk about <clears throat> is, oh, I, I never finished my thought, horror. This is a horrifying film. I suppose I'll make this point now. Why not? What is the villain of this film? Nature. Now, how do we define nature? Anything that is not us, made by us, or built by us. Pretty simple concept, right? I would make animals, plants, uh, planets, light. Uh, you know the big one. I'm building up to it. Gravity. These are all things that are nature. Now, it's a fairly big category. But you can see how that is the dominant and overwhelming threat at every point of this story. From the blight back on Earth to the, uh, the fact that they couldn't get the proper data from the wormhole to even understanding what the wormhole was, to sending the missions through, to getting to the right planet, to the giant... In some cases, it's very literal. The, the tidal wave of water being caused by the onerous gravitational pulls of, of the... Uh, with the Gargantua on the planet, you know, you, <laughs> you can kind of, a Miller's planet, that was the one, you can kind of see how this forms a continuous thread. Dr. Mann, of course, tries to kill uh, our good friend Cooper. He fails mostly because of unique circumstances and, let's be honest, the dr drive and desire never to quit, which is also a very dominant theme in the film, which I'll cover later, probably next, because I just mentioned it. But... Even even at his worst, man doesn't really present that much of a threat, as weird as that sounds. He is a wrench, but the wrench itself isn't the problem, if you understand the, the way I'm twisting this analogy a little bit. Because when he ends up docking with the ship, him docking with the ship wouldn't really have been a big issue if he'd done it properly. Instead, the actual threat that then needs to be taken is the fact that the endurance is twisting way, way too fast, wildly out of control. That is the threat. In this case, a form of momentum, uh, movement, acceleration, whatever you want to call that. And then immediately after that, the threat is the fact that they are basically out of fuel and they're careening into Gargantua, making lack of fuel and the environment once again the threat. You, you kind of see how this is just throughout the whole piece. Now, I said I'd talk about it. I'm kind of doing this out of order. I apologize. We're going to do a little more stream of consciousness than usual. Even my notes. I have a method, believe it or not, of what order I take my notes in. But even by the end of the film, I have notes in like the upper right corner of my notes because of the order in which this film was being presented. So let's talk about why I think this film succeeds so damned well. No, really. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. A lot of things got together to all work tightly together and to make a wonderful piece. We have excellent music, we have excellent director, we have excellent writing, we have excellent acting. But I think the single biggest winning point of this film is something I've actually already told you about. The fact that they never leave the individual perspective on the macroscopic scale. This is something that just keeps coming up this year when it comes to my ruminations. I just keep talking about it over and over and over. The difference between the microscopic and the macroscopic. Unique, I mentioned the confluence. This film is a unique confluence of understanding from a cold, detached, scientific ex perspective just how irrelevant we really are on the cosmic scale. Because we are. That's not presumption. That's not me saying that as an opinion. That is a stated fact. All of the mass of the entire planet combined, if you were to somehow stretch it out for all of human history, is still nothing even but a speck compared to just this galaxy. 
As I've said many times, unfortunately, I do actually understand just how big a galaxy really is. It's one of the reasons I rail so much about Doctor Who syndrome. is because this is such an onerously gargantuan scale. Now, it makes sense why most people don't want to tackle that. Because human nature isn't really accustomed to that kind of scale. hundred years, you know, measuring things in terms of seconds, recognizing the passing of minutes or feet, or meters. That's almost microscopic, absolutely minuscule-scopic. I know that's not a word. And yet, when, so the, the natural human reaction, when it comes to the real scope and scale of things, is just, whoa. How many of you, honest question, in real life, have ever been someplace in here, on this planet, this dinky little speck, how many of you have ever actually gone out and seen something truly awe-inspiring within the environment around you? Now, I have several times. I've been on the peaks of mountains, I've been on the edges of craters, I've been out in the middle of the ocean with no land in sight. I've done several things in my life that have just made me go, <sighs> and it gives you a degree of perspective, but it also inevitably leads to that sort of almost scrambling in the back of your brain, doesn't it? Now, how we deal with that, well, that defines us as individuals, and we know how Dr. Mann dealt with that. But that is what this film embraces. The film almost casually skips over years in terms of its narrative, but it does so effectively to help emphasize, yeah, we're going into a cryosleep just to get up to Saturn. We're not even starting the trip at that point. We're just going out to not even the full outer reaches of our own solar system. Two years just to get out there. <laughs> I mean, holy crap, right? And then, of course, they actually go through, and they start talking about time dilation. Now, time dilation, that's always a weird one for me. If I could segue for just a second. Time has always been a fascinating subject for me. In fact, I would say time and economics have been the two biggest focal points of my interests for most of my life. I'm not saying I'm smart about them. I'm not saying I'm good at them. Just that they have endlessly fascinated me, and I have studied them basically my entire life. I bring that up because time itself is actually kind of a terrifying thing. Picture this, if you will. Eighty years have just passed. What do you do? Now, I say that so simply, so effortlessly, but that is in many ways the results of this. I bet you're thinking there, thinking, well, 80 years, that's not a big deal, right? Think about how long 80 years is. Really put it into perspective for you, the individual, how long 80 years is. I bet money that no one watching this right now is 80 or older. So we don't even have the personal perspective. I just Lord knows I'm not. I'm not counting the time stuff. We'll get to that later. I'm not, Lord knows that I don't, I'm not that old. I'm not even half that old. So time can be a terrifying thing by itself. When you get into time dilation, it's bringing that terror into the immediacy. Because that 80 years, well, you've got 80 years to slowly, gradually get accustomed to it, acclimated, comfortable with it, start to see the world changing before your eyes, adjusting or adapting. If it just happens, there's no adjustment period, is there? That's the great threat of time dilation when it comes to human existence. We can't cope with that because 
of the same reason that if you suddenly lose your arm, and I don't mean you, you, you just, you know, no, I mean like if just a razor blade goes by at 30 miles an hour and just happens to slice through that arm and that arm's gone, your body doesn't really know how to cope with that, and neither does your mind. It just goes into shock emergency mode. Just... There's a wonderful bit of subtlety in this film. I'm sure most of you noticed it. Um, when they go down to the to Miller's planet, which... I gotta tell you, by the way, the visual effects department of uh, of, of this film deserves multiple awards and monies. <laughs> Just here, have money. It's a thank you for doing an amazing job because holy crap, they managed to make a planet with just a couple of feet or a foot depth water and miles or mile tall waves of water look absolutely goddamn horrifying. And in fact, according to that wonderful time dilation I just mentioned, it's entirely reasonable that Miller's died in the wave that was receding after they landed. You remember they see the wave and they're like, oh, it's okay, it's going away. And then they notice the one coming. That wave that was leaving was probably the one that killed uh, her? I think they say Miller's is a her. I don't actually remember. Killed Miller's. That's time dilation. All the data looks good because it was the same data that she sent for like a few seconds? Maybe? Maybe a minute or two? That's the power of time dilation. And when they go up, and this is getting to the subtle part, by the way. I haven't actually reached that yet. Forgive me for derailing. They come back up and Romilly is there. 23 years. How many of you watching this right now are at or around 23 years old? Try to picture, if you can, being left behind on a ship for your entire life. All the memories and experiences you have accumulated in those 23 years. While you wait for people who may never come back. The dog doesn't like that idea. I don't like that idea. <laughs> like, can you imagine for a moment? Because that's, that's how bad things got as a result of movie drama. Let's just be honest about that. But I want you to picture for a moment what it would be like knowing that you're about to say goodbye for seven years. That seven years are about to pass before you see these people again. And they're going to see you again within like an hour. Can you picture that? Now, I'm sorry about the dog. There's nothing I can do about him. Another thing I want to mention here with regards to the time dilation problem. This also makes it horrifying for this wonderful, wonderful scene. It's the scene when Cooper gets back up to the ship and he's got 23 years of back messages to watch. You remember that scene? Now, I just want to take a quick moment to say that Matthew McConaughey, and I hope I'm saying that correctly because I've heard it pronounced several different ways, does nail his role here. He, he does manage a, a decent variety of emotions as he goes throughout the role, and he does manage to, most importantly of all, stay as grounded and as normal as possible for someone who is nevertheless someone who is a high-skilled, not quite a scientist, but definitely more scientifically minded than anything else. And it's nice that he really is a good pilot, too, since it comes up over and over on the mission, but anyways. So he's there seeing those messages. Let me give you another perspective. I want you to feel like, I want you to try and imagine what it would be like to see a message from your kid, and then see another message from your kid, and then see a message from your kid having found someone, and then see a message from your kid having been married, then see a message from your kid and their first child, and then see another message from your kid and their second child, 
picture that if you're capable. And I'm, I'm, I don't mean that as an insult. I'm not sure I'm capable of that. I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to just... Uh, all right, let's see. What, let me check my outgoing messages. Oh, it's, you know, everyone I've ever known and loved who has grown 20 years in the last few minutes for me. Right? But that's the point. That's the wonderful confluence of the film. And I haven't left this tone, this theme, since I started talking about it. Because it tries to blend the microscopic and the macroscopic. To see the whole view from the lens of the individual. And it is distorted, as it should be. And that's brilliant in its own right. I, um, I want to talk briefly about the situation back on Earth. One of the things I'm really big on is proper exposition. Now, I've actually, I'm not, I'm not good at anything. I'm just okay at everything. But I like to keep tabs on people who are good at things. And I happen to come across a wonderful analysis treatise on Nolan's overall approach to storytelling. And he's, he's a director who gets very much involved when it comes to uh, the writing process and the editing process, which is why I'm willing to put so much weight of this on him, especially since this film is so much in his style. But I digress. What I'm trying to get to is he is the exposition guy. He firmly and adamantly believes in the concept of exposition and how to do it. And he does it in different ways in almost every single movie he does. He has actually dabbled it. I, I myself have talked about the three general types of exposition. He dabbles in all three types throughout. In this film, he does that as well, but the biggest one is my personal favorite type of exposition, which is background exposition, more often referred to as show, don't tell. In other words, there's a lot of little moments that really help to emphasize just how bad things have gotten back on Earth. I, I just jotted down a couple of these, and I just want to bring these up. Obviously, the idea of a caretaker generation is horrifying by itself, but then there's one... <clears throat> The, you know, obviously the very idea of the global, global blight uh, is actually ludicrous. Let's just go and acknowledge that. Of all the science things in this that are done well, the, the thing that kicks it all off is the, is the most unrealistic thing by far. Yes, even more so than the frozen clouds. They acknowledge the frozen clouds. <laughs> now, having accepted that, I've always said I'll accept a dumb premise if you do something good with it. I've, I've said that for years. Ironically, a cuff. I usually refer to that as the cloud effect. But in this case, we see corrected textbooks. Oh, yeah, that's a corrected textbook. I mean, we didn't actually land on the moon. That's ridiculous, right? We, had, we spent all sorts of time and effort and money on resources on all of these wasted materials, all these wasted machines, all this wasted technology. The statement and implication that government as a concept has basically broken down. That trade as a concept has broken down. That economy functionally doesn't exist anymore. All that's horrifying enough, but the way they show it is brilliant. He'll be a good farmer someday. And that's what we need. Or how about uh, the, the statements about useless machines, which I just mentioned. But then there's three parts. These really cut to me. These ones right here. First one. There's a scene where he's talking with John Lithgow. I can't remember his name, but, you know, his father. And the man's like, oh, man, when I was young, we were in everything. But try to imagine that. Six billion people all wanting stuff. And the way he says it is so casual. It's a nice way to slide under the rug there that there aren't six billion people anymore. 
We're not even sure how many there are, actually. Next point, immediately after that, is the fact that a dust storm is on approach. Now, funny fact, I've actually lived in a few places in my life where dust storms have been a real problem. And I've told you, just earlier in this very video, what it's like to see something in the environment, in nature, if you will, and be awestruck by it. Dust storm was one of those. Uh, my mom and I actually had to hole up for, you know, I'm not actually sure how long. I was a little young. I was, uh, was double-digit. I guess that's not saying much. I was in my teenage years. But we had to hole up, and we had to hole up for a while. And that was terrifying. And everyone was like, okay, run, run, go, quick, you know. It was a big event. Now, maybe that's just my own personal perspective on that, but every time I've seen a dust storm, especially a proper dust storm since then, that's been terrifying. Mass Effect 3, you remember that? When the giant dust storm shows up on Mars? Um, how about Mad Max? Mad Max covers that one, right? I'm sure there's other examples I can't think of right off the top of my head, but I bring this up. I bring this up because they just look at the dust storm and say, okay, it's normal. That's horror right there seeing something that devastating and dangerous and terrifying and just kind of packing up your things pulling up your mask pulling down your goggles going back home like it was ordinary because it is that then leads to another one now that quick aside i actually have multiple relatives currently still alive who have lived through the dust bowl <laughs> Uh, it was not a pleasant time. Let's just put that as simply as possible. And apparently they did do research on the actual Dust Bowl here in the States in order to look into this one as well as the one that hit, um, you know what, I'm not going to say because I don't remember, but it's the potato one. They even mention it in the film. So they do a good job of presenting it as horrifying. And basically, the word I want to use here is it's not terror. It's not, ah, it's just dread. Because the word to describe the actions of most of the people on the planet Earth is despondent. All we can do is endure. And nothing else. And then they find out that the corn's dying. Whoops. By the way, while I'm at, while I'm at it, another nice little subtle bit. There's this bit where um, adult Murphy goes to visit adult Tom, the, the son. And they're having dinner. And it, you get like a three-second shot of the table. But everything there is corn. 100% of it. It's just different types of corn. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> you think you're tired of corn now? Holy crap. I haven't caught up to the really big one. Because this is the one that really got to me. They mentioned how, you know, we didn't run out of engineers or machines or cars. We ran out of food. And later on, there's a bit where Michael Caine's character is talking about how NASA was shut down when they refused to bomb civilians. It's just a little thing. They don't even address it that much. But again, this is that type of exposition. Showing, not telling. We can see, based on the evidence, exactly what happened. There are no longer six billion people on this planet. A lot of them starved, and a lot of them were murdered. And I'm going to say it that way. Because mercy killing, en masse, well, that's pretty messed up, isn't it? Someone decided to make the decision to cull the population down. That brings me to my next point. That is another one of the things that, I'd say it's a theme of the work, but I actually don't agree. Rather, I think that is a sub-theme of the real thing, which I've already told you. 
the macroscopic from the microscopic view. That, I think, is the theme of this film, the overall predominant theme. But one of the other ones is cold calculus. That's a sub-theme of there. Well, if I have to shoot 10 people to save 20 people, done. That's cold calculus. Problem is cold calculus, by very definition, does not include morality, ethics, or even situations. It just says math. And math, well, math is cold. <laughs> we see this with Dr. Mann later on. But I bring this up with regards to the population thing before I move on, because I'm reminded of a quote, and I don't remember who said this. I've heard several other people use variants on this quote over the years, including myself. The quote boils down to this. When you can no longer support your population, there is no good way to bring that number down. <laughs> I like how this film presents elements that could be considered supernatural, but basically aren't. And at each point, rather than just scoffing or laughing, it's more of a, all right, approach it with the scientific method. Perceive, analyze, deduce, repeat. Always repeat. There's a lot of interesting aspects of that in this film. So, I have a couple, I have multiple notes here saying about how wonderful the visuals are of both the wormhole and the black hole. I cannot praise that enough. I got another quote for you. I have another quote for you really quick. How, how much of a curse do you think it is to be smart? I've actually talked about this before. It's the idea that if you are really smart, really, like actually smart, not that you're full of yourself, not that your book's smart, not that you, you know, yeah, my, your dad owns a dealership or whatever. No, 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 no. I mean, in the, in the reality sense of the perspective, imagine that someone is truly, legitimately smart, and thus they know, truly know, or at least as well know as they can, how bad things are. And thus, I've heard many times people say that true intelligence, true intellect is a curse because those people comprehend, or at least try to comprehend, how bad things are. And there's only a few ways you can go from there, isn't there? I like to think that's what happened with man. I want to talk about him briefly, if that's okay. First of all, his inclusion was a bit of marketing genius. I just want to acknowledge that. Nowadays, everyone knows Matt Damon's in the film, but he was, it was extremely underplayed. Virtually no one knew Matt Damon was in this film. And if you don't understand why that's a big deal, Matt Damon is a huge star. Like, he is one of the bigger stars, even currently, in Hollywood. I mean, this is like four years ago, but, excuse me, five years ago. But he is even still one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. His name commands a lot of weight, and he is an excellent actor. He also tends to play people who are either decent or kind-hearted or generally more on the positive side of the scale. Having him just show up in basically the latter half and having him be the closest thing to an individual villain were both inspired choices, and they deserve credit and praise for both of those. But it is my opinion, getting into the realm of speculation now, that man was smart, and that's the problem. As he says himself, I got here and I found out very quickly that this was not it. And I spent years resisting the urge to hit that button. Think about that for a minute. And then he finally convinces his robot, Kip, I think, to send false data just on the off chance that someone will come and rescue him. 
Before I talk more about man, I want to talk about the decision to go after man's planet rather than... Uh, oh, God, I can't remember the third planet. The one we barely see in the film right at the end. Because um, there's Miller's, man's, and Thurmond, I want to say. Anyways, there's this discussion where uh, Brand, Dr. Brand, Anne Hathaway, is giving her argument for why they should go for Thurman's planet. I think it's Thurman's planet. And it's all valid. I actually found myself being relatively convinced. In fact, I looked at that and said, yeah, that actually sounds legitimately convincing. Let's go with her. It was pretty much my thought. That was before, of course, she brought in the emotional entanglement to the thing. Now, I bring that up because her argument was valid. Man's data said it was perfect. And yet, logical reasoning said it wasn't. Her reasoning was sound. Her logic was sound. Now, yes, logic is not the truth. That is an absolute reality. But if, for example, just to use a parallel, you are told to walk left or walk right, and one of these locations seems, you know, it's just burning hot, whatever, and the other location seems fine, and you pull up some data that says the burning hot one is, 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 okay, is you know, definitely where things are fine, everything's going to be fine over that way, you have a contradiction. You have data that disagrees with your own, your, your own perspectives as well as your own logic on the circumstance, right? Now, when you have a contradiction, you have a coin flip, basically. And that's what bothered me about that scene. It's probably one of the only scenes I didn't like in the whole film. Because it should have been treated like a real dilemma. They have logic telling them one thing, and data telling them the other. Which do you choose? Now, having said that, obviously we have to go for man, otherwise we wouldn't have any drama, right? But... <laughs> I, I actually disagree with that personally. But that, it does help to showcase man's perspective. But I do want to talk about one other thing just really quick. If it's not obvious, I believe in the concept of the intangible. No, I'm not talking about God or religion or anything like that. I'm talking about the concept of the intangible. I talk about it all the time on my show. Tangible things are obvious. Boom. Food, water, shelter, sleep, reproduction. Tangible, right? Intangible concepts are things that I talk about constantly. Honor, decency, uh, fear, hatred, um, you know, love, which is, of course, what she talks about. She gives the statement that love itself is an intangible concept. In fact, as part of her proof, she flat out states, we love the dead. There is no tangible benefit for the love of the dead or the love of the past or the love of the thing. And her argument was actually brilliantly written, in my opinion, and brilliantly presented, because Anne Hathaway is a good actress. And so what we have is two good arguments for them to go to the other planet. Why was no one even torn on this? I'm sorry, this, like I said, this is why I don't like that scene. No one was even torn on this other than her. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Let's talk about Manson more, because I do have a little bit more to talk about him. This is one of the true... Again, Matt Damon's an excellent actor. This is one of the true moments where I see a good portrayal of insanity. And I stress that. Not crazy, not mad. Those are different things. I'm not going to define them here. Insanity. Mental disconnect. The brain literally not working right. This is someone who is smart, who is committed and who was basically, his brain basically dissected itself in his isolation. Until, in what is effectively a panic, 
and I want to stress the way I say that, because that's going to be relevant in a minute. In a panic, he decides this, uh, comes up on this whole scheme to try and get himself rescued so he doesn't die alone in the cold. I should also point out that Man serves as a nice counterpart to multiple other characters in the film, but the most obvious one being Cooper, who, you know, actually does sacrifice himself, or at least intends to sacrifice himself for the greater good, twice. Anyways, <clears throat> but Man is just gone. Panic right? Now, normally when we think of panic, we think of it in the immediacy, because that's most panic is more tangible. If you see, and this is one of my favorite examples, if you see a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex stomping after you, panic tends to take over. Wrong! You know. (laughs) But I stress that because panic, almost by definition, is parts of your brain taking over. Or to phrase that slightly differently, you literally don't think properly when you're panicking. So your logic, your reasoning, don't really line up the way they should. And that is what Damon effectively does as his portrayal as man. He portrays someone who is stuck in a loop of constant panic, which makes him insane, because his brain is then quite literally not functioning properly. And there's no malice there. I love that, by the way. There's no malice there's no malevolence. There's no... <laughs> and now Supercore will give me lots of money for doing this. No. There's barely even intent behind what he's doing, other than, I don't want to die alone. You could argue if he actually cared about the mission Plan B at all. That's possible. Man is someone who com- uh, comes across to me as someone who long ago just accepted the inevitability of cold calculus from a macroscopic perspective but could not accept it from the micro. In other words, to put it simply, it's easy to condone a few numbers on a screen to death. It's a lot harder to die. So, he loses it. And he completely loses it. But I absolutely adore the scenes where he tries to kill Cooper. I really do. Because he, he you know, hits the comm unit, first thing, and then you know knocks him down. And then he goes, 50-50 is the best odds I've had in years. Clonk! You know, this is the second time Matt Damon was in a film around this period of time where he was abandoned on an alien planet, wasn't he? Anyways, <clears throat> but then there's this great, great bit where he cannot bring himself to watch Cooper die. And so instead he walks away and he starts talking to him on the vent. It's like, I'm going to be here. You're not going to be alone. You're not going to be alone. I'm, I'm going to do this with you. I'm going to do this with you. And yet, once again, he can't. It's so wonderfully ironic because he's actually not a murderer. Or I'm I'm saying this wrong. But the real person there, when the brain is functioning properly, is not a murderous person. He does not have that murder intent in him. So to deliberately kill someone, which is murder, is something that he just can't... It's just not processing. And so even though everything that is him, his intangible side, tells them that he has to be there for him, no, okay, I can't be there, but I'll be out here on the comm. I'll be there on the comm. And he just can't. He just can't endure listening to that man die. Shuts off his comm. The irony, of course, being that that's what allows Cooper to live. And, as a consequence, the fact that man could not listen to a dying person means that humanity was saved quite directly. <laughs> uh, I love how Murphy refuses to quit, turns around, burns the field, 
and goes and rescues her her brother her, her step I guess that would be uh, uh, nephew and stepsister or sister-in-law excuse me no, I'm not sure what it is whatever the the rest of her family to get them the hell out of Dodge while distracting her stupid brother and of course that's what leads her back to the room which is the resonating frequency I'll talk about that don't worry we'll talk about that in a minute and um, it, basically that she refuses to give up now this is funny because man himself says multiple times that's human nature you know you're, you're the instinct to survive is so strong even the dying brain will do everything it can to endure even on a bio and this is true human beings on a biological level are incredibly programmed to survive to a ludicrous extent actually and the more you know about it the more I, I don't even know all the way about it like I said I'm not good at anything but people who are smarter than me can tell you just how much the body is designed to survive and so she refuses to give up, and so does he. Cooper gets the calm, calls for help. Brandt, of course, comes right after him, saves him, warns him. They go. And then, of course, when faced with the impossible, 68 rotation speed, Jesus Christ, he still says, well, okay, it's this or nothing. Let's go, you know, because it is. It is that or nothing. Good thing he's a good pilot. And then, of course, what's funniest about all of this, though, is that man dies because, again, he just couldn't process or wouldn't process. Everyone's telling him over and over and over, don't decouple, don't decouple, don't decouple. And he is in what I like to call the throat-scrabbling part of panic. Now, that's a weird way to put that, but I want you to imagine for a moment, close your eyes, picture panic as an entity, if you will, that usually stays right around here. Somewhere, well, actually more like down here, but you know, whatever, in the stomach area. And the more panicked you are, the more electrified your skin feels, the more it's rising up until it's literally right here, until that panic is in your throat, scraping at it. And you just no longer can process thought at that point. And you can tell, and this is a nice touch, and again, credit to Damon, the actor, you can tell that man's panic slowly escalates from down here all the way up to here throughout the course of his interactions with them until he's in that airlock, and he's just no longer capable of reasonable thought. And he dies in silence. <laughs> Let's talk about the Tesseract. The usage of sound in this film is wonderful, too, by the way. I mean, some of the music felt movie-y. I mean, it's Zimmer. But the usage of sound, the direction of the sound was excellent throughout. So obviously this film is a very clear-cut example of type 1 time travel. For those of you who have never heard me talk about this, in which case it's weird, but here we go. Type 1 time travel is time is a linear line. What that means is all time travel that ever happened always happens. There's no altering. There's no multiple dimensions. There's no multiple timelines. Everything you do has always been done and always will be done. Okay? It is also my personal favorite form of time travel, especially in fiction, because it is the hardest to write. It requires the most forethought and the most careful planning in order to make sure that everything is in place for when you see it the first and second time, if that makes any sense. And they do a lot of that here with the bookshelf and the, the Tesseract and it's, for lack of a better way to put it, the nexus point, which is her room. Why is it the nexus point? Here's where we get interpretable. The film mentions two ideas, both of which I posit to you. Idea number one. 
This is a deliberate construct specifically designed to help him interact in the specific way and time with the specific person he needs to in order to get everything lined up correctly. In other words, this is a crafted experience. Option two. This is... Actually, I guess there's three options now that I think about it. Option two. Two and three are kind of the same option. I'll just blur them. Option two is that this is more about patterns of circumstance. That... That love really can cross time. That because he has been dropped into the Tesseract, which is a three-dimensional construct intended to physically interact with the fourth dimension, the thing defining the connecting points between where he currently was and when he currently was with where and when he was going to be is the connection of the intangible, the thing that patterns him into reality, a.k.a. his love for his daughter. Thus, he ends up there, interacts with her, puts the, the data on the watch, they save humanity. Which do you think it is? Or is there another option that you think it is? Now, he himself says he did this, which is the second option, like I said. His choice, his love, his whatever, is what led him to her. Uh, Tars, I believe, pretty much posits the idea that, no, no, they put you here to do this. I'm not sure why here, but whatever. I would be very curious to hear your thoughts on this. My thoughts are, well, fairly mundane, as they usually are. I think that these upper-dimensional beings weren't. The uh, bulk beings, I think they call them. I, I agree with McConaughey's idea. I think that these are simply people from the future interacting with him and the way he is interacting with her. I don't think that they have evolved into some super science to become basically the Q. I think instead that they have simply gotten to a point where they can understand gravity the core theme of the film, as I've mentioned several times, and how it interacts with time and space in order to accurately go back and ensure that what always happened always will happen. And I think that then when he ended up intersecting that, going into the Gargantua, that he was able to go back and interact with her in such a similar manner, allowing her to be able to get them up to the point where they would eventually reach out and get to Thurman's planet or whatever it is, in order to be able to once again, get the advanced and build up a new society and then interact with the black hole, which is right frickin' there, in order to, to repeat the pattern all over again. That's my thoughts on the matter. Again, very mundane. A lot of people have talked to me about the ending, too. I don't have much to add to it, though. It's all right there on the face of it. He has nothing here, really. Oh, it's worth noting that the film implies, although never states outright, that he does get time with her more than just a couple of minutes. Obviously, you know, she's, she's going to be here in two weeks, and then, hey, and then all her family's there. There's a lot of implication that they had more time than just a couple of minutes to spend with each other. And then she died because of the rigors of transferring through space travel and, at her age. That is what I interpret on that one. So I think he did get a real reunion with her, it's just they didn't show that on camera. They only showed her deathbed scene on camera. I could be wrong about that, of course. Because the dialogue contradicts that. You know, the whole talk about the watch. I knew it was you, blah, blah, blah. Take your pick. It's up to you. I do have to admit, it's kind of satisfying to, you know, for her to find out, no, she was right. It was him all along. I don't think it's very satisfying for him. But I do like the implication that the individual perspective, for lack of a better way to put it, matters. 
that he needs to get back to Brand, specifically so that Brand is not alone, so that the individual may still have the individual, even as they endeavor towards the macroscopic. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. There's an extremely high chance that what's going to happen here, logically and mundanely speaking, is that he will go back to Dr. Brand, and they will spend the rest of their days, and then they will die. And then, unknown time later, probably years, the ship, you know, the, the, the uh, ships will finally arrive for colonization and finally be capable of setting themselves up on that new planet, and then, shazam, they might finally find the graves of Cooper and Brand. But it's better than dying alone, right? And that's the interesting point about it. Because it really comes down to something so incredibly simple and human. And that's, I think, why this film succeeds, because it never forgot that ground-level perspective. Very interesting film to think about. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this. I'll see you guys next time.